Well, good evening, Rocky Peak. <laughs> it's so great to be with you. My name is Michael, and I'm one of the pastors. And if it's your very first time, I want to welcome you. I just hope you have a great time with us and that God really speaks to you in a powerful way. But we're going to be going into our time of teaching right now. We do this every week. And so inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. If you're a regular, you'll know that. But if you're new, you won't. So I encourage you to take that out. You'll definitely need it. And so if you're ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Yeah. All right, let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful to be here in your presence underneath your name, the authority of your name, the name that's above every name, the name that conquered death, the name that conquered sin. And Father, we come today in that name of Jesus, and we come announcing his kingdom. We come proclaiming his authority, and we come proclaiming our obedience. So we are people of the obedience, people underneath your leadership. And Father, we pray that today you would equip us to stand firm and stand tall in the spiritual battle that you've called us to, that we would be at our posts when you call. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Well, our story starts today on the beach, and uh, this is actually a story from my, my own life. It's about a month ago, a few weeks ago, actually, and uh, I'd gone away for a couple days to, um, to pray, to plan for the future, and so I got up that first morning, first morning of the retreat, and uh, went to the, the breakfast buffet that was part of this hotel, and so went through a couple times, enjoyed that. Um, <laughs> Got my coffee, and now I was ready to spend some time with the Lord before we started the official retreat. And so I looked around. I, I found a place, uh, looked for a good place to go, and there was an area with soft seating, TV, sports game on. But uh, fortunately, there was no sound and no one there. So I said, this is perfect. And so I went and I pulled out my iPad, uh, pulled out my, my Bible and my phone, and began to spend some time with the Lord. And, uh, and so as I, as I was doing that, uh, I was praying for a variety of things, things come to mind, just kind of processing with Jesus uh, what we're doing together. That's what I call prayer. You know, it's like it's partnering with him what we're doing together. And uh, it's just processing different things that were going on. And as I was praying, one particular topic came to mind. Um, and it was, it was something that had actually come up for the first time about three weeks before this. It's something that uh, that uh, someone had asked me to pray about. And, uh, and so I, um, I was praying about it about three weeks before. Um, it, it's something that had been going on that I'd shared with sort of the inner circle and, and they'd been praying about. And uh, so they came back and, and, and had this idea. So uh, I was praying about that, but that was like about three weeks before. But the day before I, I came on the retreat, I got another email on the same topic. And so, uh, and so I began to pray about that. And um, I began to pray for discernment. I began to pray for direction for our church. And, uh, and then I've been praying for a while, so I decided to take a little break, look at my email, and uh, that's when it happened. <laughs> well, today, we are kicking off a brand new series. <laughs> it's called Metamorphosis, uh, Transformed by Truth and for those of you who are brand new, this is actually, uh, I describe it like the third season in a long-running TV drama, right, called Metamorphosis. And so this longer series, Metamorphosis, the whole, the whole series is based on a letter from one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. His name is Paul. Um, we call him the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a group of Christ followers uh, in southern Greece, a very southern tip, a major metropolitan city, one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire. It was called Corinth. And so uh, this is a, a group that he had started about five, six years before. So he's writing a, a letter to them. And we, so we call this letter Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And one of the key words in this, uh, in this letter that he uses to describe God's vision for our lives is this Greek word called metamorpho. And uh, of course, this is where we get our word metamorphosis from. And, and that's where we use it in English to describe a slow but profound change, like the transition that a tadpole goes through to become a frog or a caterpillar to become a butterfly. But it's also the word that Paul uses in this letter to describe the supernatural transformation 
that happens in our lives when we first come to Jesus. We enter into what Paul describes as a face-to-face relationship with God through Christ. And we begin to be transformed as we listen and follow the leading of his spirit in our lives. And so today, as we enter in this third and final series of this letter, uh, it starts at chapter 10, and it goes all the way through chapter 13. And what we're going to see in this series is the powerful role that spiritual truth plays in our transformation. But before we jump into chapter 10 today, uh, I need to give you just a little bit of backstory uh, because when we get to chapter 10, uh, much like when we got to chapter 8 with generosity, the whole letter takes a sudden turn. It's like, uh, it's like out of the blue, um, we, we're going to meet some new characters. And so just to, we, we need a little un, uh, backstory to understand what we're stepping into. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called Transformed by Truth, the Backstory. So let's just take a couple minutes, but let's set it up. If you've been here throughout this longer series of metamorphosis, you know that one of the big challenges Paul is facing with the church at Corinth is that there are some in the church who are questioning, even criticizing Paul's authority as an apostle of Jesus. They're questioning whether Jesus really chose him to speak for him with his authority. And for the most part, up to this point in the letter, it seems like those, this, the, the questions, the criticism, have been arising from within the church of Corinth. There's church members, certain church members in the church questioning Paul's authority. But when we get to chapter 10, it takes a sudden turn, and in the next few chapters, we're gonna be introduced into a whole new set of leaders who are not from in the church, but outside the church. And they're coming, they've come into Corinth, we're not sure when, and they are uh, really questioning and challenging Paul's authority at a whole new level. Now it's interesting, as, as scholars, we don't really know like where these people have been, like where have they been the whole letter, right? And so we don't know like why suddenly in chapter 10 we're being introduced to these people. What has happened? When did they come? Where did they come from? And honestly, there's a lot of different theories about this, but none of them are totally satisfactory. But what we do know is that these new leaders are Jewish leaders. We know that for sure. Uh, Secondly, we know that they are introducing a different message about Jesus. In fact, in in next week, we'll see that, that Paul describes him as introducing a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. So same titles, different dictionary. And so Paul will describe them, when we get next week to chapter 11, he will describe these leaders as false apostles, workers of unrighteousness, and servants of Satan himself. The problem is the church of Corinth are enamored with these people. They are gifted speakers, and this really appeals to the Corinthians. They come out of a culture where being able to to do public speaking well is one of the highest values. Paul's not a great speaker in that sense. So these speakers, they're they're coming, they're, they're gifted, they're charismatic, they're claiming amazing supernatural experiences. And they're, so they're promoting themselves and they're undercutting Paul and trying to take over the church. And the Corinthians are buying it. And so they are suddenly in deep spiritual danger. And Paul is gonna be required to pull out all stops and to do things he would never do under normal circumstances. He will do anything it takes to rescue these people and keep them from going down with these new leaders. And so with that background now, we're ready to jump into chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up and turn on to chapter 10. There's a section there called Transformed by Truth, Spiritual Strongholds. So in chapter 10, it starts off, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am, quote, timid when face to face with you, but, quote, bold toward when I'm away. Now, what's going on here? 
Well, this is one of the criticisms that we're going to see in this chapter. One of the criticisms of these new leaders is you cannot trust Paul. He's not really an apostle of Jesus. He is weak. He's not a man who walks by the power of the Spirit. He walks in like a normal human being in the flesh. And this accusation goes back to a key event that happened earlier in the year. And this is an event that we've studied a lot in the earlier series. If you've been here throughout the series, you'll remember this. Remember back in chapter 2, we learned about this, that earlier in the year, Paul had gone to Corinth because the church was a mess. And when he got there, the church was in crisis, and there was a rogue leader who had risen up who was challenging Paul's authority and leading the church astray. You remember that? And so when that happened, you remember Paul had a choice. He could either get, go big and go apostolic on this guy. Uh, but his fear was, if I do that, it would tear this church apart. So in great self-control and humility, he chose not to go big, but to just back away and retreat he went back to Ephesus where he was from and he, he wrote a very uh, straightforward, painful letter. And he sent it via Titus to challenge him. You've got to leave this leader. You've got to remove him from leadership. You need to come back to Jesus and come back to me as the apostle Jesus has sent. And if you remember, we learned in chapter 7 that the letter worked. And that for the most part, not everyone, but most, most people realize their mistake They removed the rogue leader, and they wanted to reconcile with Paul. But what we're learning in chapter 10 is this issue is now rising again. Because for many in Corinth, and maybe these new leaders that have come in as well, when Paul withdrew in gentleness and humility, it made him look very weak. And they said, this guy, yeah, he can write painful, tough letters, but when he's really here, he can't stand up to these guys. He's like a guy who can talk big, but can't back it up. And so as Paul starts it, we're starting right into this defense right away where he says, hey, uh, the reality is when I was there, I was acting out of the gentleness and humility of Jesus. And he said, I who am like bold when I'm away, but timid when I'm there. Right? So he's just kind of addressing this issue, and he'll address it more as we go along. So he starts off by the humility and gentleness of Christ. I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face-to-face with you, but bold when I'm away. And he said, I beg you, and I want you to, you might want to underline, I beg you, that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think we live by the standards of this world. And in the Greek, by the standards of this world, literally is who think that we walk according to the flesh. What Paul is saying here, that the criticism is Paul is not really an apostle. He's not really been sent by Jesus. He's not empowered by the Spirit. He's weak. And Paul says, I beg you to get your act together so that when I come, I, you won't have to find out the truth. Right? That, that, that I will come with the authority of Jesus. And said, for though we live, verse three, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. In fact, the weapons that we fight with, they're not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, the question is, what, what's he saying? Well, Paul is moving into a military analogy. And if you're a longtime follower of Jesus, you know this, that one of Paul's favorite metaphors, one of his favorite uh, teaching images uh, is this concept of spiritual warfare, that we're in a battle. We'll talk about that more later. But, but he's using an imagery that would have been very familiar with them, not so familiar with us. So we need to understand how ancient warfare took place. In the ancient world, like when, um, let's say, Rome would attack a new area, and you're attacking a city, the city would have huge walls. So in order to win the war or, or win this battle, you have to get past, you have to tear down those walls. Now, usually in the walls would be towers that would be strongholds, fortresses, from which you could fire weapons and pour tar, tar and all this sort of thing. 
And so in order to breach the wall, you have to attack the stronghold. So it's how, and you have to tear them down or immobilize them. And so what you'd do is you'd put the whole city under siege. Nothing goes in, nothing comes out. And you would move your huge siege engines in. These would be huge towers on wheels that would be, that'd be as tall as the walls. And they would bring these, these siege engines in and they would have uh, fiery shooting darts on top and bowmen on top that could shoot down into the towers. They would bring their catapults in uh, that would throw these huge rocks over the walls and into the walls. Uh, I remember reading an account by Flavius Josephus, the famous just, uh, Jewish historian, of one siege. He was on the inside with Jewish forces being attacked by Rome, and the rocks coming in would take people's heads off when they were, they were so powerful. Uh, they would bring in their battering rams. And so they would put the city under siege and they would especially attack these strongholds or fortresses that were built in the walls. And once you uh, took them down and you, you won, you were able to breach the walls and you were going to take captives. Either you take the citizen captives either uh, to sell them into slavery or to murder them or to let them live whatever you decided to do. So that's the imagery. So in the ancient world when Paul's writing, they all understand this. This is just like, common knowledge, and he's using that imagery. And so he says um, in verse four, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have the divine power to demolish these strongholds, like in a war. And so the question is, well, what do you mean by strongholds? What are these strongholds, Paul, that you have the power to demolish? You have divine, supernatural power to demolish. What are you talking about? And he tells us in the next verse, we demolish what? Arguments. So the strongholds are arguments. Now, what do you mean by arguments? We don't mean like the one Marty and his wife was having. Uh, I, I want to give you this word in Greek. It's worth having, right? Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. It's called logos mos. So if you're spelling it, it's L-O-G-I-S-M-O-S, accent on the last syllable, logos mas. Now, that may sound familiar because it's a very similar word to the word logos, which a lot of you will know, uh, which is the Greek word for word. It's much bigger than just word, but like in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's the word logos. So logos, uh, uh, logos mas, it doesn't mean like just argument, like two friends arguing. It, it has to do with a mindset, a perspective, a worldview, uh, 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 thoughts, ideas. So Paul says that in this spiritual battle that we're in, Paul is like a general uh, leading the forces of Jesus, and his job is to go into enemy territory and tear down the mindset, tear down the ideas, tear down the thought patterns, destroy the perspectives that the enemy uses to destroy our race. So he says, the weapons we fight with, verse four, are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the what? the knowledge of God, who God is, who we are, how our relationship with God works, the path to life. The enemy has logos mas. Paul's job is to go in and say that is not true and to bring the truth of Jesus, who God is, who we are, how life works, the path to life, how our relationship with God works, and to tear down the strongholds that where Satan holds captives. The ideas of this world, the enemy's ideas hold us as a race captive. His job is to breach the wall, tear down the strongholds, and take out captives. So he says we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. You believe this, but that is not true. That's a lie of the enemy. 
Here's the truth. I'm taking that thought captive and I'm bringing it under the authority of King Jesus and his truth about life. And he goes on, and we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. So Paul, as Paul says, I'm, I'm soon I'm going to be coming to Corinth for the third time. I know you've got these false teachers. I know there's a lot of sin. I know there's a lot of rebellion. You're being told that we are weak. You're being told that we aren't, that I'm not an apostle. You're being told that I don't have what it takes to be bold. I'm begging you not to buy that lie. Because the reality is I'm an apostle of King Jesus. And he's empowered me with spiritual power to tear down enemy strongholds. And when I get there, if I need to, I will unleash that power. And once you as a church are back under his leadership, I will take, I will punish every disobedience. So don't mistake my humility last time for weakness. Now, between here and the end of the chapter is a very long and complicated section. And just for the sake of time, uh, we're not going to go over it kind of verse by verse. But what Paul is going to say between here and the end of the chapter is he's going to take them to task for buying into these new leaders. These new leaders they think are so wise, he's basically saying, you're just showing how foolish you are to buy into them. And he says, you're, you're judging leadership by the wrong standards. In fact, if you look at verse 7, he says, you're judging by appearances. You know, bad, bad mistake. And so he's going to go on. He's going to defend this accusation that, hey, he writes, uh, he writes strong leaders, but, letters, but weak in person. He'll defend that. Um, and he will challenge these leaders that have come in that are very self-promoting, bragging on who they are, bragging on all they've accomplished. And Paul doesn't want to get into a spitting contest with them because for Paul, the only thing he wants to brag about is who Jesus is, what Jesus has done in his life, and what Jesus has called him to do. And he says, the reality is, is that Jesus has called me to be your apostle. And Jesus is the one who led me to start the church there. And Jesus is the one who worked through me. Like, you are my field. And these new leaders are coming in, making these huge claims and trying to take over a field that's not even theirs. And then he ends up in verse 17 and 18 of this chapter by saying, but let the one boast, boast in the Lord. So these new leaders are boasting in themselves how great they are, how mature they are, their resumes, their spiritual experiences. He says, you know, as followers of Jesus, when we boast, we should boast in the Lord about what he's done. This is a quote from Jeremiah 9. We'll come back to it next week. He says, for it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. These new leaders, they may be commending themselves all day, but it's not the one who commends themselves who's approved, it's the one the Lord commits. And so you all need to wake up, smell the roses, kind of get back, get, get your brains back, right? and he'll begin to, to, uh, to next week to challenge them about the severe danger that they are in. They'll say next week, just like Eve was deceived by the serpent, you are in danger of falling away from Jesus and betraying your first love. And so you need to wake up before it's too late, all right? So that's the passage. Now, what I want to do today is, uh, is, is kick off kind of the next two weeks. The next two weeks are going to hang together because in both weeks, Paul's talking a lot about spiritual warfare. And what we're going to be seeing is is the, the role that truth plays in our transformation. And so today, I want to talk to you briefly as we just kick off this new series, three big picture principles that flow out of this about spiritual warfare. Uh, but then also, um, I want to tie it into where we're going with this all-church 24 hours of prayer and fasting this week at the end. So there on your note sheet, you have a section called Metamorphosis Spiritual Warfare. And so we're going to start with the basics so the first principle goes like this, that spiritual warfare is real. 
Now, I don't know if you're new to this. Maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus, or maybe it's your first time here. Um, but, but what the Bible teaches is that when a man or woman comes to Jesus, we step over an invisible line, and that we switch sides in a spiritual battle that's been going on from the earliest days of our race. And that, uh, that, that uh, and as a result of coming to Jesus, we enter into a new level of spiritual warfare because we're no longer on the enemy's side, we're on the king's side. And now, th this is not the first time that Paul has talked about spiritual warfare. In fact, if you've, if you've read Paul's letters, and there's 13 of them, you've read Paul's letters, you know that spiritual warfare, what the enemy does, how he operates, the reality, the unseen realm, is something that was very real for him. He talks about it a lot, just like Jesus talked a lot about it. And, uh, and so it comes up throughout his letters, sometimes in a big way, sometimes almost in a sidebar way. We've already seen it in a couple times in 2 Corinthians, but he didn't make a big deal about it at the time. It's almost like a sidebar comment, at least the first one. And the first one happens back in chapter 2. And this is that crisis with the rogue leader had risen up. Paul writes the letter. They realize their mistake. They remove him from leadership. But they've, you know, when they removed him from leadership, they removed him from the church. And Paul says, okay, if the guy's repentant, it's time to bring him back. And this is what he said in that context. He said, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. Like he doesn't want them to hold a grudge on his behalf. He says, and I also forgive in order that Satan might not, what? Might not outwit us. And look what he says, for we are not unaware of his, what? Schemes. So Paul says that in the church of Jesus, that Satan will always be attacking because we are the kingdom of light. And the enemy will always be attacking. And, and he'll, he'll attack in different ways. He'll attack with divisions. He'll attack with physical illness. Uh, he'll attack with uh, uh, circumstantial things. He'll attack with discouragement. He'll attack with fear. Uh, he'll, he has a wide variety of weaponry. Um, Paul says in this situation, hey, you need to bring this guy back in and forgive him because Satan was behind this, and if you hadn't dealt with him, Satan would have won. Now, you did deal with him, but if you deal with him too harshly, Satan's going to win. And so we need to show the love and compassion of Jesus, bring him back and restore him. But what I want you to catch is this concept. He says that Satan is alive and well at the church of Corinth. And we are not unaware of his schemes. Paul says, I can see him operating. I can see what his next move on the chessboard is. And I want to move my king to checkmate before that happens. You see? And so, so we've seen it. We've seen Satan at work in the church. But it's almost a sidebar. It's just a sidebar thing. In chapter 4, it comes to the forefront more. And Paul says when he shares the message of Jesus, he says that many times people don't respond because Satan has blinded their eyes. Look what he says in chapter 4. He says, the God of this age, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel. Let me ask you something. No show of hands. Rhetorical question. But how many of you are super shocked to this day that you're a Christian? <laughs> how many of you to this day once said, like, I never thought I'd like those crazy words, stupid, ridiculous, never be. And then you met Jesus. And the veil came off. And you're like, you're amazing. And he says, I, I love you in spite of what you've done, in spite of where you've been. I want you. And I want to forgive you and I want to restore you and I want to heal you. I want to teach you the path to life. And you said yes and your life has never been the same. And how does that happen? Well, a veil has to be removed. 
And he says, Satan actively works throughout cultures to blind people to the reality of the solution, who Jesus is. So he's talked about Satan a couple times in the letter, but when we move into chapter 11, 10 and 11, the gloves come off. Like we are moving into a new level of teaching about spiritual warfare. And you saw it today where Paul says, hey, listen, my job description as an apostle of Jesus is to march into enemy territory and tear down strongholds. And I'm not doing that in my own strength. I'm doing that with supernatural power, weapons that Jesus has given me to tear down the thought systems, the belief systems that keep people from coming to Jesus and then taking those thoughts captive under the authority of the king. So he takes it to a new level. And so uh, if you're new at this, one of the most important passages in Paul's letter about spiritual warfare is in Ephesians chapter 6. And it's at the very end of the letter. And if you're a longtime Christ follower, that uh, you'll probably be familiar with this. But he's wrapping up the letter and he says, finally, be strong in the Lord. Um, be strengthened in the Lord and in his mighty power. Notice you're not, you can't stand against him on your own. He's too powerful. He says, put on the full armor of God. And so again, this is a military metaphor. We're no longer using siege engines. We're talking about like a Roman soldier, right? He's using as a metaphor of how we fight the battle. He says, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's what? Schemes. There it is again. He is scheming. You do understand this, right? That the enemy knows your name. He knows where you live. He knows where you work. He knows your weak spots. He knows your temptation. He knows your family generations and generations back. And he has schemes, methods, strategies to destroy you because that's what he does. He's like a a sociopath. He is the ultimate sociopath who lives for human misery and most of all, lives to do anything he can to strike the kingdom of God and the king. And so he's got a method for your life. He's got a method to destroy your marriage. He's got a method to destroy your family. He's got a method to destroy cultures. And Paul says that if we're going to stand against him as followers of Jesus, we have to be on our game. And if you don't have your armor on, you're going down. You have to be strong in the Lord. He's scheming against you. And then he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now, you may think it is. You may think your boss is possessed. (laughs) Right? You may think it's flesh and blood, but what Paul is saying, hey, it's beyond the politics, beyond the government, beyond the racism, beyond the sexual abuse, beyond the sexual trafficking, beyond the war, beyond the poverty, there is a force. What you see are like actors on the stage, but there's a playwright writing the script. And he said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's against, and catch us, the rulers. There's rulers? Like rulers implies followers. Yeah, there's a hierarchical system in the unseen world. There's rulers against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We have time to go into this, but the Bible talks about this other places. There are geographical assignments that the enemy has. There's hierarchical structure. There are power systems. And he said, that's what we're up against. And he said, therefore, once you realize that, you need to put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, like not all days are created equal. Not all seasons are created equal. 
I, I think of when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, and after he passed that, I love it, in the Gospel of Luke, he says, and so Satan left him for a more opportune time. Not all days are created equal. The enemy waits for opportune times, just like he would in a battle. You wait for the right time to attack, the time when your enemy is weak, when they're vulnerable. In all of our lives, there's days of evil. In the lives of a church, there are certain times that are more, for whatever reason, times of attack. In, a time, in, in the life of a culture, there are times of vulnerability. And so Paul says that you need to be prepared so when the day of evil comes, you're ready. The book of Proverbs says that if your strength falters in the day of attack, how little is your strength? If we stand when there's no attack, no big deal. Do we stand when there is attack? He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground like a Roman soldier that they would stand in alignment and force when the enemy would charge with their shields, their shields on, their swords at their side, their spears ready, trained for battle, special sandals with spikes on the sandals so they wouldn't slip. They are ready to take their stand and they would take their stand until that first hit and then they would go. And he said, you have to be prepared so when the day of evil comes, you can take your stand and you are not run over. So that's where we need to start. The spiritual, um, the, 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 uh, spiritual warfare is real. We will talk more about that next week, but I wanna lay that foundation. Number two, the second thing that flows out of this passage is there's a battle for our minds. Now, when we think of spiritual warfare, I don't know about you, but when I think of spiritual warfare, we tend to think of the more spectacular, obviously supernatural, right? If you're old enough, you think of the exorcist, right? Uh, uh, it, you know, it's like you, you think of heads spinning around or, you know, you think of demonization or you think of Jesus casting out demons or the Apostle Paul casting out demons. You think of voodoo. You think of the occult. You think of seeing spirits in your room. You think of kind of the, the spectacular. And all that stuff is very real. But can I tell you this? The highest level of spiritual warfare is not that level. The highest level of spiritual warfare is at the level of ideas. It's at the level of logos mas, of worldviews, of big picture ideas. And the reason is simple. If the enemy can control how we think, he controls you. I think you're like, if he can convince you that the secret of life is having more stuff, he can destroy you. You'll work till you're, you'll, you'll work your bone to, to the bone, you'll, your finger to the bone. You will sacrifice your integrity to move up in the organization. You will lie. You'll, you'll, you'll do what it takes because you have to get to the top. One big idea, the more stuff you have, the happier you will be. One big idea, you buy into it, it can ruin you. One idea. Simple idea. He doesn't have to tempt you to overspend every day. He just has to convince you that more is better. And if you buy into that, it will cripple your life. Think about racism. What's racism? Racism is that one culture or one race is superior to another. If he can convince a culture that one race is superior to another, he can unleash untold oppression and violence through that one idea. How many Jews died in Germany because of one idea of a master race and a trouble race? 
How many people died in Rwanda during the genocide because of a racial bias of one tribe against another? How many slaves were brought to this country and we are still paying the price today? For the idea that one race, the white race, was a superior race and was destined to rule. It is demonic. And if you can convince a culture of the big ideas, you control the culture. And you can destroy the culture. You don't have to tempt every person a billion times to do what they know is wrong. You just have to convince them of the big ideas, and then everyone will freely go that path. Think of the big, the big ideas that are impacting our culture right now. There is no creator. There is no creator, no. All that you see, the entire cosmos, is a result of billions of years of accidents. Well, if there's no creator, then there's no design to life. There's no right and wrong to life. There's no one to report to. There is no meaning and there is no purpose and there are no moral absolutes. If there are if no creator and all of life is an accident, all bets are off, and there is no reason why Hitler and Mother Teresa should be distinguished. They're just doing their own thing. If you can convince a culture that all sex is good sex, as long as we have consenting adults, you can destroy the social fabric of a culture and bring incredible chaos and confusion. If you can convince a culture that all spiritual paths lead to the same place, there's no need to look for truth because there is no truth. There's only your truth and my truth. There is no truth with a capital T. What about in the body of Christ? If the enemy can convince you that certain sins are greater than other sins and because of what you've done in your past or what's been done to you disqualifies you from being truly loved or truly used, the enemy can immobilize you through shame. Ideas. Spiritual warfare at the highest level is the level of ideas. And these, this is what the Apostle Paul was called to do. He is called to go into enemy territory and take on ideas. And in the name of Jesus, tear down those ideas. So that we learn the truth about who God is and who we are. And how a relationship with God works and the path to life. And when that happens, when those false ideas crumble, captives go free. This leads to number three. Number three is that truth is our secret weapon. Paul doesn't say this, you have to read between the lines, but I think it's fairly obvious. This is his job to march in and tear down Lagos Mas of the enemy. And of course, the way he does that is with the truth that Jesus has revealed to him as an apostle. And of course, Jesus said the same thing. You know, many of us are probably familiar with Jesus' fav uh, famous statement that you will know the truth and the truth will... Yeah, so we know that, but often we don't know the context. Let me share the context. The context was Jesus was teaching and some new people had come to believe in him, at least at some level. And so in that context of teaching new believers, this is what he says there in your note sheet in John chapter eight. He says, if you hold to my teaching, and in the Greek what it really says is, uh, it says if you 
um, if you remain in or stick with. So hold to is not bad. It's just that I'm not sure we get the whole connotation. The, word is, the Greek word is meno. It means to remain in, abide in. You live in it. You hold on to it. And my teaching literally is the word logos, my word. If you live in, you hold on to, you live out my teaching, then you're really my disciples. So first of all, Jesus is, de- is defining what it means to be his disciple. He says, here's how you can tell if you're a disciple. It's not, did you raise your hand in a meeting? It's not, did you pray a sinner's prayer? It has to do with, are you holding on to my teaching? Are you following what I'm telling you? That's how you know. He says, so if you hold on my teaching, you're really my disciples, and then you will know the truth. truth, and the truth will set you free. So notice there's a process here. He says, here's how it works. Okay, if you hold on to my teaching... Like you cherish it, you take it in, you receive it, you follow it, then you will know the truth. The truth will be revealed. And he said, and then the truth will set you free. What happens if we skip one of those steps? Oh, I heard the truth, I heard the teaching, sound good to me, like it. I don't really hold on to it, I don't really follow it. You stay right here. You do not move from here to here. You don't get the truth until you follow. You don't get the truth by listening and you don't get the truth by liking. You get the truth by following. You listen and you follow, then you get the truth. And then when you get the truth, the truth sets you free. And so this is what Paul is saying. His job is to deliver truth, a truth that demolishes strongholds and sets the captives free. Uh, You know, earlier in this series, we looked at a verse several times that's so critical to understanding spiritual formation, uh, discipleship, transformation. And it's a verse there in your note sheet, Romans 12, 2. And uh, you may remember this from earlier in the series. It's the only other verse where Paul uses this word metamorpho for transformation um, in, in his letters. And it's so profound, he's, he's writing to the Christians at Rome and he says, do not conform, um, do not con- conform to this world. Um, the word for world is this, this age. I think for us, the word culture communicates. You know, it's like, he says this age, this present age, you know, in biblical thinking, there's this age and the coming age, right? So, this age, kind of the way the world looks at things, their perspectives, he says, don't conform or be conformed. Remember, don't be like jello that goes in the mold and then you come out conformed to the image. Like, like don't be conformed to the thinking, the perspectives, the values, the priorities, the mindset of this current age or culture. But he says, but be what? Yeah, transformed, and that's that word metamorpho but be transformed by the what? (laughs) Renewing of your mind. You see how this works? See, it's not just Paul that has to take every thought captive, it's us. And but when he's talking about taking thoughts captive, he's not just talking about having a bad thought and changing that one thought, he's talking about a mindset, a perspective, a value system, a worldview. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve, I like the word uh, demonstrate, experience, what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He's writing these Christians in Rome, and I want you to catch it, he says, God has a will for your lives as followers of Jesus. And, And trust me, it is good, it's pleasing, in fact, it's perfect, it's amazing. He says, but in order to experience that vision for your life, you have to be transformed. And to be transformed, you have to have your minds renewed. So what happens if our minds aren't renewed? Well, we're not transformed and we don't experience his will, what's good and pleasing and perfect. And so what we're going to be seeing in this series is that, yes, God's vision for our lives is transformation but for that transformation to happen, that we're transformed by truth. It's truth that sets us free. And we're going to be unpacking that throughout the whole series, week by week, as Paul tackles this from different angles. Now, 
this trans- what kind of leads us into that final section there, transformed by truth, 24 hours of prayer and fasting. And so a couple weeks ago, I shared with you, when I first announced this 24 hours of prayer, I, I shared with you that, that I might share with you the story of how this came about. And so I, I, I want to do that. And this takes us back to the story that we started the day with. Um, uh, you know that as a church, our motto is listen and follow. That we believe God is alive, he's real, he speaks today. And our job is to listen for his leading, through his word, his spirit, and then follow what he says. And, and that's not just a motto, that's, that's for real. That's, that's really how we approach it. And um, so what, what happened, if you go back to the story you started the day with, I'd gone, it was just back in the middle of August, that I'd gone with Tony Bowick, our executive pastor, and we had gotten away for a couple days over to a hotel on the beach uh, just to do some uh, praying and planning for the future. And so that very first morning, we'd got there Thursday night, and uh, the first 40, uh, Friday uh, morning, I said, well, why don't we just start at 9, 9.30, and give some time, spend some time alone to pray, and just kind of seek the Lord before we do that. And so I'd gone early to the buffet, and like I said, got a couple plates of food, and uh, uh, good food, but uh, anyway, uh, you know, oatmeal uh, with brown sugar packed down. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but anyway, you know, so I, I got some breakfast and got my coffee and I found this cool little niche place with some soft seating and I was spending some time in prayer. So I had my iPad out and you know how I pray, I've shared before, you know, with like do the arch over the, the thing for different topics. And so I'm just I'm praying and just kind of going before the Lord and hey, what, what do we need to be discussing, what talking about? And just sort of just kind of processing some different things. And, uh, and, and so this topic comes to mind and what had happened is about, Three weeks before this, there was something going on with our staff. I'll tell you about it later. It's not a big like, crisis, uh, like a bad thing, but it's a bad thing, but not a bad thing. But anyway, uh, but uh, this thing had come about three weeks before, and I'd shared it with a sort of inner circle, some prayer partners, and, and, uh, and so uh, one of them had come back, someone I have great respect for had come back and said, you know, as I was praying over this, I, I really feel like we need to do like a 24 hours of prayer for this, and I, and so I, you know, took that seriously. Uh, my wife shared that with me through her. And, uh, and so I took that seriously, uh, kind of prayed over it, but just really didn't feel it was the right time, the right thing or whatever. And I was just like, well, just stay open. So it's been like two or three weeks, you know, before. So it's now the Thursday before the retreat. And, and right as I, you know, I clear out all my email. And, but right before as I, I get the retreat, I get this, this email from a, a, another person that I, I love and trust at Rocky Peak. And she was sending me this email and she said, Hey, this, I know this is kind of weird, it's kind of a clue, but I, I really feel like right now that um, our, our church is under kind of a, 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 like a higher level, a more intense spiritual attack. And I, I don't know why, but I, I really feel like we, we need to have like a 24 hours of prayer. Now, this is really weird. Like, no one talks to me all year about a 24 hours. And I've got two. <laughs> I got two. It's like, huh, well, that's really interesting. So because of that, on Friday morning when I was spending my time in prayer, I, I just, one of the things I prayed, I, I put 24 hours of prayer, put my box up, put my circle over, and I just wrote two words down. In fact, I went back this week to check it out. Two words were uh, direction and discernment. Hello, this has come up twice. Two people I respect. I just want to come before you again. I just need your direction. I need your discernment. And so at that point, I decided to take a break. I've been praying for a while. I take a break. And I look at my email. I cleared up, and there's an email. In fact, I don't want to read the email for you. I, I just prayed, you know, let's give a direction, discernment. And it's from someone on our staff. And um, she said, good morning, Michael. I've been pondering and spending time with God and something came up. I know that in my own life, I felt a lot of movement. And I think there's some big things going on in the spiritual realms, maybe more than usual. I was wondering if we have a 24 hours of prayer coming up anytime soon. <laughs> like, this came in like right as I was praying. There have been a lot of illness and transition. I just felt moved to mention it. I know there are a lot of work, so maybe we could do something simpler. <laughs> Either way, I wanted to reach out and say I'm praying for our leadership team and ministries. And what's interesting is I was talking with her today. I said, I just want to get this story right here and I, uh, how this happened. And she said, you know, it's just, it was the weirdest thing. But she said, uh, that morning, it was Friday morning, I was putting a diaper on my daughter was not praying, and all of, a, all of a sudden, I had almost an out-of-the-body experience. And she said, I felt compelled to get my phone and to text you, like, you have got to do this right now, to text him right, send him this email right now. And I'll tell you, when, I, when I, I saw that email, it wasn't just the timing, it was more than that. 
I just felt the Lord's confirmation. Like, yes, this is right. And so since that time, then uh, that, you know, we, we began planning that right away. And since that time, we've been praying, like, what are the things that we need to pray? So I want to be super clear here. I think last week I made some of you nervous, like there's something big going on, you know, like some big church secret. I got one person like, is the church having a split or something? Like, no, no, nothing like that. There was nothing, this was truly like out of the blue. Um, Like I was going to, it's just like, um, but we just like pressing, Lord, what do we need to be praying for? And I'd like, uh, and so the three things that we're going to be focusing on are there on your note sheet. And um, like Chris has said, um, that we're going to be uh, sending out an email uh, tomorrow or uh, uh, Monday afternoon um, with reminder of the encounter and a link on there. You can download the PDFs of what to be praying for if you can't come and join us. Of course, I'm hoping you can, but if you, for whatever reason you can't. And so three things, just real quickly, that uh, I want to, we're going to be focusing in on. The first one is spiritual transformation renewal, and repentance. Now, this may sound kind of mundane, but I want you to catch this, that for four months, we've been on this series about transformation. And what I know is that transformation only happens when we listen and follow. And what I know is that if we're holding out in disobedience, transformation doesn't happen and renewal doesn't happen. And so what we're doing is starting here. We just want to go before the Lord and say, Lord, we truly want to be a transformed people. We truly want to have minds that are renewed. And if we need to repent, if there's anything in our lives that's holding you back from working in our lives in our church, we want to give you an opportunity to speak to us now so we can turn from it and turn to you. And remember what we learned a few weeks ago, repentance is not recognition. Yeah, it's wrong. It's more than remorse. You know, yeah, I feel bad. It's more, uh, it, it's, it's more, <laughs> my mind just went blank. <laughs> um, it's more than regret. It's more than regret. I wish I hadn't done it. It's a reorientation. It's a change of direction. And so we want to start by saying, God, we're here for you. We're here for you. We live for you. This is your vision for our life. Is there anything in our lives that you want to speak to that's holding us back? And Father, we want to pray that you will pour out your spirit on our congregation and in our life in an unprecedented way because as we'll see as we go along, we are going to need it as we move in the future because the price of battle is going up. Number two, the second thing we want to pray for is spiritual power, protection, and discernment. So we saw today that we want to be, um, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. And so we saw that we're in a battle. We saw that Satan attacks churches. It's our sins right now that there is a heightened level of attack. There's not a lot of reason to point to that. It's not about that. It's more, um, it, it's more that uh, we just sense it in the unseen realm and we just are called to attention that we just need to go. We want to be alert. We're saying, God, would you protect our church? Uh, when you look through the Bible, of how does Satan attack churches? Two ways that stand out right away. We saw them today in 2 Corinthians. Number one is disunity, conflict. And number two is false teaching. A different Jesus, a different gospel, a different spirit. And so we want to pray that God would empower us to stand against the enemy, especially if this is an evil day for our church, a time of attack. Uh, and we want to pray that he would protect us. But here's the thing. I want us to pray for discernment. Because remember what Paul said, we are not unaware of his schemes. I feel that too many times, I as a pastor, us as a church, we're unaware of his schemes. Like, I want to get better at knowing when he's attacking, where he's attacking, how he's attacking, and then I want him to give us wisdom on how to respond. If he's attacking here, how do we respond? Lord, is, do we need more teaching on that? Do we need uh, more prayer? Do we need more fasting? 
What are our weapons? Do we need more repentance? Do we need more worship? Do we need to be equipping our body in different ways for the challenges that are coming? And so I, I want us to go before the Lord. We're going to pray for empowering, protection, and, uh, and discernment so we can discern what the enemy is doing and how to respond. Now, one of the ways that uh, the enemy often attacks churches, ministries, is by attacking leadership. And this can be a wide variety of ways. You know, discouragement, uh, physical illness, um, sexual temptation, moral temptation, ethical thing. You know, there's a lot of different ways, but you've all seen it. The, the leaders go down, then the, the church suffers the, the consequences. And one of the things that's been interesting, and honestly, I don't even know what to make about this, but as I look at the history of our church, since I've been here, I've been, what, 14 years, so the history of our church, it seems like there's a weird amount of physical illness and accidents to happen, to, that happen to upper-level leaders in our church that are really weird and unexplainable. I just think you'd think of my voice. A lot of you know I have a voice issue that came in a, a year after I came to Rocky Peak. They have done every test in the world, but they can't figure out what's wrong with your voice. Like if I talk, it hurts. Why is that? I don't know why. They don't know why. That's just weird to me, right? And we could go down the line with some of our key leaders. And the thing is, is it's hard to know sometimes what's what. Is, that, is this an attack or is it just like life? And as you know here, we're not overreactive like everything's an enemy or something like that. But I just want to have better discernment for us as, as a body. And I also need protection for our leaders, for our, our pastors, our staff, our elders. We want to pray protection. What I want to share with you, and this one kind of was the first, kicked off the first impetus towards this uh, 24 hours of prayer, is, is I want to share with you that Pastor Dre is very sick. Uh, that Dre has been uh, struggling through kind of a weird condition for nine years now. And uh, the doctors don't know what it is. We've gone through a million tests, a million things. They believe it has to do now, the most recent thing, is with a very serious sleep disorder that doesn't allow his body to sleep more than maybe 10 minutes at a time or something like that, that's resulting over time in a lot of physical ailments and pain because the body's not repairing itself. Uh, and it's led to extreme, extreme, extreme exhaustion. And so as of the beginning of August, he's had to go on medical leave. And so we want to pray specifically for Dre and his wife, Megan, and their family. I don't know if it's a spiritual attack or just life. I don't know, but it's just getting weird, right? It's just weird when you see the pattern. And so I just want us to go before the Lord and say, if in the unseen realm this is an attack, we stand against it as a church. And if it's not, that's fine. We'll, we'll just pray for his healing, and then God will, will heal him. But uh, tremendous implications for our church. The third thing is for sexual purity, sexual clarity, and courage. We live in a culture that is becoming unhinged, unhinged when it comes to sexuality. We've rejected the creator, and Romans 1 says when you reject the truth about who God is, you lose the truth about who you are. And it leads to sexual confusion at every level. And this confusion is being pressed upon us in our culture in increasing ways, whether it's the marketplace, our schools, what our children are being uh, uh, exposed to, new curriculum is coming out from the state. And how do we stand in a culture like that? How do we raise our children in a culture like that? How do we stand as followers of Jesus with grace and truth in a culture like that? And what I'm seeing throughout the body of Christ at large is there are many Christians who are compromising. There are many Christians who are worshiping a different Jesus, a different gospel that we are, and many, many people are being tempted to compromise the clear teaching of the word about human sexuality because of the pressure of the age. And I believe this pressure is only going to increase. And so we need to pray for sexual purity. It needs to start there with us. We need to be living lives of purity, and this includes the use of pornography. And this is a huge concern I have for our body. I know so many of us in our body are struggling with pornography, both men and women. 
And we have come to often to a place where we just accepted it like a chronic illness. This is not a chronic illness. We are the people of God. We have Jesus Christ. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We can beat this and we can live in freedom. And if we don't, it's a waste of time to keep talking about transformation when the most obvious things of Scripture, first step of following Jesus, we're not following. And so we need to put a stake in the ground. We need to say, here we stand. We're followers of Jesus. This is one of his top priorities for our life. We want to stand pure and forgiven. We want to be healed and restored. And so it starts with us here, seeking purity, seeking repentance, but then we need great clarity on what the word teaches and we have confidence on that and that we have courage to stand even when the price tag goes up, Amen. and it will. We have courage to stand with grace and truth so that we can be a place of healing and transformation for people here at Rocky Peak who are struggling, whether it's with sexual morality, or whether it's with same-sex attraction, or whether it's with uh, gender dysphoria, we wanna be a place of healing and hope and transformation, but that can only happen as we stand for what is right and good and true with great courage. Right? And so we wanna gather before God and say, God, we have never lived in a culture like this. We need your wisdom. We, we want you to come, O King, and teach us how to stand and give us the courage and the wisdom to know how to stay, to take our stand against the schemes of the enemy so that we can continue to hold out the word of life like stars in a dark sky. Amen? Amen. And so I want to call you to join with me on Tuesday that as a church we would fast and we would fast and we would pray and we would come to campus and we would seek God and we would say in the words of the prophet of old, the king of old, God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be with us as we continue this journey. And as we launch this week, as we seek you, God, as we come before you, we pray that you would teach us how to fight with the weapons that are divinely powerful for the taking down of strongholds. God, we pray you would meet us. You'd meet us in transformation and renewal and in repentance. You'd meet us with courage and with power and discernment. You'd meet us with sexual purity and clarity and courage in the midst of a, a culture that's losing its way. And we pray, God, as we bring our tithes, our gifts, our offerings to you now, we pray you'd call us to attention. You would say to us, awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, for Christ will shine on you. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's stand.